0: God bless this time of looking into your Word. Speak to us through your Spirit. Convict us, not only of our sin, but of your calling on our life to experience the joy and the goodness that you designed from before the world began, that you desired us to find and to experience in our relationship with you. And we will thank you and praise you through Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Well, we're in our last of five weeks of our first round in the book of Ecclesiastes, where we are working our way through the first three chapters. And last week, if you weren't with us, we uh, reviewed that really famous passage that there is a time for Everything. And through that, we've learned that just like the created world that we live in, that we have no control over, we cannot control the times and the seasons of our lives. Only God has the wisdom and the knowledge and the perspective and the power to be able to do that. He is God and we are not. In verse 15 of chapter 3, Kohelet which means the teacher, which is two other words for the name Ecclesiastes or the title Ecclesiastes said, whatever is has already been and what will be has been before and God will bring the past to an account. And so he's setting us up for the last half of chapter 3 today where, where he wants us to know that even though we are not in control of life, even though we are not in control of the times and the seasons and what we experience in each moment or each day of our own lives, God is in control and therefore we can trust that he's a good God and he can bring the good out of everything we experience, the good, the bad, and the ugly. That God is in control of time is supposed to be a comfort for those who are centering their lives on God. While at the same time, it can be a warning to those who ignore the reality of our created nature in this world that God has made and continue to try and manipulate and control our own times and seasons of our lives to find some advantage, to try and create some profit for ourselves, to somehow think that there's something more that we can gain than what God has already given us. In verses 16 and 17, today we pick up and develop the theme of divine control of the times as he then addresses the question, if God is in control of the world and of time, why do good things, why do bad things (laughs) happen to good people? Why is there evil in the world? The, The theological term is theodicy, right? Why does evil exist? If God is good and God is love, how could there be bad things that happen in this world? And so he continues in verse 16, and he says, I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same fate. Breath. Now we know that in the Old Testament, the word for breath, ruach, is also the same word for spirit. And there's this poetic nature that often gets missed in some of the English translations, where he says, "All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over the animals. Everything is a breath." Right? We talked about it in week one. The word "meaningless" in the NIV is more accurately translated "a breath" because life. Is a breath. It's here today and gone tomorrow. It's not something that we can grab onto or control. All go to the same place and all come from dust and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit or breath, right, rises up, upward, and if the spirit of the animal goes down to the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? And so what we see here is that wickedness reigns where there should be judgment and justice, right? We see the problem of evil in the world. We see wickedness thriving. We see bad things happening to good people and we wonder, where is God? How could God allow this to happen? Like every aspect of the world that isn't in harmony with the reality of God, as we've been seeing through the first three chapters, the present reality, however, he says, cannot last. God himself will bring to judgment, will provide impartial justice for both the righteous and the wicked. All people will come before the throne of God one day to stand in judgment for the the deeds of their life, to give account for what they did with the gifts that God had given them. A well-known prophetic theme from the Old Testament is brought to the fore here. It may well be that the wealthy and the powerful in this world often escape human justice, since they are the ones who are often in control of it. It may be well that in such circumstances, those who have fewer financial means, the poor, the destitute, and less power, those who are not able to control the workings of government and the power systems that be, often fail to attain justice from their own fellow human beings. Yet God himself is the ultimate guarantor of justice, and in the end, he says, brings everyone to justice. This is the theme throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. And So the second part of verse 17 here is probably best translated in the, in the present tense, one scholar suggests, rather than in the future tense like the NIV has it. Literally, it should say there is a time for every activity, for every deed done there. There's kind of this word there at the end that the NIV doesn't translate, and you'll see why in a second. You see, as God sets the times for human existence and plans the seasons of our lives, so also there are times for all of God's activities that He has planned to pursue, all of His deeds that He will enact. And we've discovered last week that it's His deeds that are the decisive ones in human history, not those of the wicked. See, this curious there at the end of the verse that isn't included in the NIV is, is to underline this idea. If you go back to the beginning, he says wickedness was there twice, right? In place of judgment, wickedness was there. In place of justice, wickedness was there. And now he's saying that God's justice will also be there. It should not be thought that God's seeming inactivity in respect to wickedness and evil and the brokenness of this world signifies a concession of his sovereignty to to the powers that be. Even in those very places where we can see that things are not the way that they're supposed to be, God will bring his justice in his time. As we can see throughout the rest of the Bible, included here in Ecclesiastes, whenever we mortal beings begin to think that we're more powerful than we are, when we begin to think of ourselves in terms of being the gods of our own lives, suffering for other creatures and the creation itself is what follows. Wickedness and evil don't come from the hand of God, but from human striving after profit and gain from the world around us. The Bible clearly links love for God with love of neighbor. And conversely, it links idolatry and greed with social injustice and oppression. I love this one quote. One author said, when human beings begin to think of themselves more highly than they should, from this lofty position, they end up pouring down suffering on others. You see here, the teacher is attempting to help us, again, deconstruct the illusions of life that we often carry with us by reminding us of our tendency as human beings towards pretensions, towards thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought, maybe towards thinking of ourselves and our needs and our wants first. But he says that he needs to remind us of our fate, which is ultimately no different than the animals. From the rest of the created world in which we live, let us not forget that we too are creatures created by God for his purposes and not for our own. Now, it's also suggested that just as we were supposed to think of King Solomon in the first couple chapters, that here, if you know the story of some of the other great kings that are mentioned in the Old Testament, you might think of one from another country that was named King Nebuchadnezzar. And if you know the story of King Nebuchadnezzar that you can go back and find in several places, but particularly in Daniel chapter 4, you know that, that King Nebuchadnezzar began to think of himself as a god. And that God decided that he would make him to be like an animal for a while in order for him to remember what it means that he too is a created creature of God's. And so Nebuchadnezzar is humbled by God for boasting about his achievements and his power and and oppressing other people and forcing them to bow down and worship him. And so he lost his sanity and lived among the animals for seven years. And we know that the word seven or the number seven is the number of completion and the number that most often represents God. And if you know that story, when his sanity ultimately returned and was restored, he ended up praising and honoring the God of creation. For all that we as human beings like to think of ourselves as being able to manage our lives, to be in control, to have freedom and choices and options for our lives... We are unable to construct our own reality. We're unable to manage the times and the seasons in which we live, and in truth, if if we really face it, we are often more like the animals of the world than we are like God Himself. And so implicit in this observation is the suggestion That we are not to live our lives in the hope of gaining some advantage over the rest of creation in which we share both dust and breath, but simply to live life for its own sake, finding joy in the doing of life and receiving that joy itself as a gift that comes from the hand of God, that that is the reward of life. And so in that sense we are too also like the animals, right? The animals live moment by moment. They receive what they get each day from the hand of God. They make no plans. They have no strategies. They're not thinking, thinking to increase their bank account. They don't store up treasures. Well, maybe the squirrels store up nuts and trees. But they don't make great plans for their lives. They don't think that somehow they're going to be able to manage and control everything that happens. And the reality is that it's not just other human beings who end up being trampled in our rush for gain and profit, but it's the rest of creation as well which again is contrary to the very purpose for why God created human beings to begin with. And again, to understand this biblical perspective that underlines the the philosophy and the perspective of Ecclesiastes, we have to go back to the beginning of creation. And in the Bible, we see that the human calling was to look after God's creation, right? To tend God's garden, not to exploit it for our own ends. Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, right? Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, and that is kind of the royal we. Let us make man in our image, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, and all of the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female he created them. Now there's this idea of rule we often think of as power, right? God's given us power over the creation. But if you understand the context of the story, the kind of ruling that God wants us to do is a stewardship, is a caretaking, is a serving of others and the creation that he's given us. And so rather than setting ourselves up of the gods of our own lives and essentially engaging in a life of worship of the self, we're called as those who are made in the image of God, who have eternity set in our hearts to be wise stewards of the creation that God has given us and the very life that we each are called to live. See, that paradoxically, this sense of eternity that God has put in our hearts that he had in the beginning of chapter 3 does not lead us only to fail to live in the present moment when we get too full of ourselves, but it causes us to begin to mistreat other people and the creation around us because we're seeking to use the world for our own gain. Rather than being in relationship with God and with others and with the creation... And living in righteousness with all of those things, we objectify the world around us and we begin to use other people and we begin to use the creation to seek to find profit and gain and to make ourselves happy. And so creation itself isn't even perceived as something that's important in God's plan of salvation. We as human beings are on the top of that heap, right? Jesus came to save me. And it doesn't matter how I use other people or how I use God's creation, because I've got God's salvation. And so I'm focused on eternity, and I'm focused on the next life, and so I can live however I want in this life, right? When in fact, if we truly understand the biblical perspective, we see that the earth itself and all of creation holds just as much a part in God's plan of redemption as you and I. Some quick examples, Isaiah 65, verse 17. See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. He's not only going to restore life to each one of us, but he's going to restore the goodness of his original creation. Or in the New Testament, Romans 8, 19 to 21. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Does that not echo the sentiments of Kohelet and the teacher in Ecclesiastes? right the frustration and the toil and the difficulty of life that comes when we get off track and think that somehow life is to be grabbed and controlled for ourselves rather than to come as a gift from God. And so given the nature of reality he always comes back to the question how then should we live? And what he sees is that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work to enjoy their labor, to enjoy the the tasks and the routines and the drudgery of going through daily life, which only seems like drudgery when we think that somehow there's supposed to be something more. And we miss the joy that it can be in every moment when we appreciate and in gratitude accept that the life that we've been given is God's gift that we're supposed to enjoy. Life itself is the reward. Now, NIV says that's their lot, right? Which sounds kind (laughs) of negative. You you take your lot and don't complain, right? You get what you get and you don't throw a fit. (laughs) But in Ecclesiastes 2.10, the same word that NIV has translated as the word lot, he's translated as reward. He said, my heart took delight in all my labor and this was the reward for all my toil, You see, it's all that Kohelet holds as profit or gain when all is said and done in life in this world. We're to live life not in the hope of gaining some advantage over other people or getting ahead of the world, but, but to share in the dust and the breath of the very animals and the creation in which we live simply for the sake of enjoying the life that we have. Ian Pravan, who wrote one of the commentaries that I've been using to study, says, When the dust settles and we arrive out of breath, at the end of the journey, that will be all that remains, what we've enjoyed from what we've been given. So how does the teacher then imagine that God is going to bring judgment both to the righteous and to the wicked? If it's uncertain in this perspective, whether it's even life beyond death, right? He kind of says, you know, this whole afterlife thing, you know, whether the, the human breath and spirit goes up to God, but the animal breath and spirit goes down to the earth, who knows? We can't see that far beyond this world that we live in. And, of course, he had the perspective that that we don't have, or he didn't have the perspective that we have after the resurrection, right, where we've been given a glimpse of the real possibility that there is something more beyond death. But for him, it's not even a question that seeks an answer. He's more concerned that people focus on how to live a life now, today. And if we understand how to live with God in the present he suggests, he trusts that God will be able to work everything out with justice in eternity. And isn't that, again, a foreshadowing of what Jesus has revealed to us about God's plan for justice in the end? See, even those of us who now live with the hope of resurrection because we know that Jesus is alive still need to live a life between birth and death this side of heaven. And we need to live it in the right spirit and in the right way so that we don't miss the gift that God has given to each one of us. Death may not, in fact, necessarily be the end for us because we know that Jesus and has now offered us to live in eternity with him. But as Kohelet allows us to see, it might be, it is still significant Uh, that death itself is a significant reality that that mocks our own pretensions to think that somehow we have the power and the ability to choose how to live our lives and to find profit and gain for ourselves apart from the gift of God in Jesus. See, as Christians, even though we are more clear about uh, the reality of life beyond death, we are also more clear about God's divine judgment that comes at the end after death right hebrews 9:27 tells us just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment this should focus us even more one would think on how we're living our life now today you see i think we can too quickly forget that the resurrection of jesus itself doesn't appear primarily in the new testament as an idea about the future But it's the grounds for how to live our lives now in the present and to experience the freedom and the joy that God had intended when he created us to begin with. You see, I think this idea of immortality and eternal life can't be seen by human beings in the abstract. It's not a concept that we can comprehend as mortal created beings. It can, however, be glimpsed in the concrete. Right? It's only as people begin to live in joyful uh, response to what God has done and to center our lives on him and to receive the gift of life in joy and in gratitude that it's possible that we begin to see that we are living in eternity now. Right? We've talked about this before. The past no longer exists. The future is not here yet. All we have is the now. Now. And I believe what God is teaching us through his word is that if we can begin to live in gratitude in the now and receive life as the gift each moment and each day, we are being trained what it'll be like to live in eternity. Because all we can say about eternity in our limited human comprehension is that it's an eternal now. And so how do we begin to to pull back the veil of the illusion that somehow there's more that we can gain, there's more that we can grasp, there's more that we have to do to ultimately be happy and find contentment and to experience the joy of what God has already offered us, not only in the gift of life and creation, but in the gift of new life in His Son. When we are invited To demonstrate that the teacher is right when he insists that the only rational response to the reality of life in this world, if we really take the time to look at it and admit the nature of the created world we live in is one of reverence for the God who made it and who made our lives. Issuing in a life that becomes centered on God and sees all of life as a gift with each moment as an opportunity to live in the joy that that gift can bring. You see, our response to God's grace and God's blessing should be to seize the time that we have, to live it well and to live it joyfully and to give life away to others in gratitude so that they too can see the reality that life comes from the hand of God as a free gift. See, Jesus we know in retrospect comes and reveals God's plan for judgment and justice in the world. And what is God's judgment that Jesus reveals? God's judgment is the forgiveness of sins. The mercy for the brokenness and the wickedness of this world, and the free gift of eternal life for those who would choose to receive that gift and to acknowledge that we are not God, but He is, and only through Him can we experience true everlasting life. That can't be the answer. There has to be punishment, there has to be justice. If God doesn't strike people down with lightning bolts because they've been bad and no good and evil, what good could there be in this world? How could he be a loving God if he doesn't condemn people to hell? Hmm. How does that work? See, God is allowing the consequences of our sin in the world right now. That's why there's wickedness. That's why there's brokenness. That's why evil exists. Because God allows human will to have free choice, and we all end up experiencing the consequences of our sin. And you can imagine from the beginning of the world till now how many sins and evil and brokenness have been planted into this world. But we want to blame God for that? We want to say that, that, that God shouldn't have given human beings free will. God shouldn't have created the world the way it is because we know better, right? If I were God, in fact, I, I kind of am God of my life, I'm going to say, forget you, God. You're not, you're not very good. I know better. And yet all the while we, we intentionally forget and overlook and skip the ways that our own sin and our own brokenness continues to, to contribute to the evil and the brokenness of the world. That we too use and abuse the people in the world around us because we're seeking to get our own profit and our own gain and our own happiness. And so God has already issued the guilty verdict on the righteous and the wicked. All of us, he said, stand guilty before the judgment of God, right? There is no one righteous, the Bible says, not one. And so how can we have any claim on the grace of God or hold God accountable to being any other than he is? But then the conclusion is that God has already enacted the punishment that we think others deserve. Right? He's enacted the punishment for sin and evil in the world, and he's laid it where? On Jesus. That's why we have the cross, because it's the symbol of God's punishment for sin that he took upon himself so that we wouldn't have to. The prophet Isaiah 53, verse 4 and 5 said, Surely he took up our pain." See, it reminds us and foreshadows the gift of God in Jesus by telling us that we make two important mistakes in this world. Number one is we misunderstand the very purpose for why God created life to begin with. And the second mistake is we misunderstand the extent of our own ability and power to manage and control life in this world. When we believe that the purpose of life is to find our own self-fulfillment, We come to believe that we should have the ability to create and produce that fulfillment in our lives. And yet it never works out, does it? And so we begin to live lives of frustration and despair and depression because we keep thinking that if we work harder or be better or somehow do it differently, that we're going to find a different result. And all the while, going back thousands of years in this little book of Ecclesiastes, God tells us, you just got to give up striving. Because you can't do it. And even if you try, what you discover is it's all futility. Because you're not the God of your own life. There's only one God. And he has offered life to you and me as a gift. Twice. First, in creating us. And the second time, in saving us. His Son, Jesus. Human life is but a mere breath in this world. Here today, gone tomorrow. No matter how hard you try, there is nothing you can do to produce truly satisfying results if you're not centering your life on God. Whether you seek to find fulfillment through knowledge and wisdom or through pleasure and enjoyment or through wealth and possessions, just when you think you've almost arrived, just when you think you've got enough to make you happy, it slips through your fingers like a vapor or a mist and and leaves you disappointed again. And so even though death is painful and losing loved ones causes of grief and suffering, we are reminded by Kohelet and throughout the Bible and even in the death of Jesus that death is the ultimate statement of our own human limitations and our creatureliness, that when push comes to shove, we're really not that different from the animals. Generations come and generations go and no one even remembers who's gone before. Life itself becomes a heavy burden and a miserable business when we live in this way because this way of living is an exercise in futility. It's like chasing after the wind. But there's another way of living in this world. There actually is a way to find the good life, the good life that God created all the way back in the beginning before sin came in and messed up his good creation. The good life, the teacher tells us, entails viewing the daily routines of life and the daily relationships that we go through as the reason for why God has given us the gift of life, and we are to steward them well. He is shepherding the times of the world, and he's shepherding the times of your life and my life so that his purposes are the purpose that that come to fruition. And even though we cannot truly understand and control the times of our lives and the seasons that we go through, we are are reminded to cast ourselves on God because He cares for you and me. The God on whom we are forced to cast ourselves, to acknowledge that He is God and we are not, the Bible tells us, is a good God and He's a loving God. And there is nothing more that he could do to demonstrate his goodness and his love and his desire to care for and steward the times of your life than to give his son Jesus and to invite you to receive new life as a gift in him. And so I want to wrap up this part of our series with Romans 8, 28 to 32. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, along with his son, graciously give us all things? What are you striving for in your life today? What are you wanting that you don't have? What are you hoping for that somehow you feel like you need to create or you need to manage or you need to control? Is it just possible that God is inviting you to give up control and to see life in a new way and to gain a new perspective that he's been sharing with his people for centuries, that if you simply understand that there's nothing that God doesn't wanna give you that is for your good and for his glory, that you will receive life as a gift and you'll find the happiness and the contentment and the joy that we're all longing for. At the bottom of it all, Jesus reminds us that we simply need to die to ourselves in order to discover true life in Him. And so, as we enter into the holiday season and we celebrate the gift of Jesus that came into the darkness of this world, even though life is, continues to be difficult and we have to endure often pain and suffering, we are going to be praying that God will help us to see in this perspective that Kohelet shares and that the New Testament reveals that we can still find strength in the waiting when we give our lives to him and we receive everything that we have as his gift. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes, and we are challenged by the words there. God, we recognize that brokenness and oppression and injustice don't come from your hand, but they come from the brokenness and sin of human life in this world. We recognize, God, we need to ask your forgiveness and your grace for the ways that we have contributed to that brokenness and that wickedness. And yet we also, God, pray. For your forgiveness and your grace to wash us clean and to give us the courage to step out in new ways, to be wise stewards of all the gifts you've given us, sharing the gift of your grace and your love with those around us. God, remove the veil from our eyes and help us to see our lives as they really are. Not as worlds that we have to manage and control as if we were gods of our own lives, but but lives that we can receive each moment and each day as a gift from you, knowing that each moment that we live now in you is a taste of what eternity is going to be like when we enter into heaven and receive our ultimate reward, which is everlasting life with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.